If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Folks, we are in our final message in the Gospel of Luke. Amen? Amen. Amen. 18 months of going through the Gospel of Luke with Pastor Tom. He's exiting with the youth, by the way, the uh, track junior high and high school. Those who would like to go to the barn can head out with Pastor Tom. But 18 months of going through this wonderful Gospel of Luke. I also want to make mention of the fact that while this summer we're going to do a little bit of a a potpourri, uh, cover a a number of different topics, come uh, fall we are, looks like, tentatively heading in uh, the book of Esther. Uh, so we're going to be in the book of Esther come September, and I wanted to share that with you all. If you wanted to read in advance and get to know that story, I think it is apropos for such a time as this. Uh, but meanwhile, this summer, uh, we have a few open slots that we haven't decided yet what's going to be preached, and so I will just sh- say to all of you out there today, if there's a topic, if there's a, a portion of scripture, if there's uh, some aspect of theology that you have a question about and would like to see it preached on, uh, go ahead and drop that down. And uh, Pastor Tom and I are going to consider that. In fact, uh, one uh, such member, uh, Stella Eichner, she asked for a message on uh, the image of God. What does it mean uh, that we are created in the image of God? And Stella, I want to tell you that uh, Pastor Tom's going to be preaching on that at a forthcoming message. So we want to be responsive to the needs of the people. And if you have a topic that, or a scripture that you'd like preached, well, this summer we might uh, take a few of those suggestions. So please let us know. Let me open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this uh, time now to give attention to your word. We know, Lord, that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces, it pierces, Lord, our very selves, dividing bone from marrow, Lord, Revealing the intentions of our heart and showing us where we need to grow and be stretched. So Lord, we appreciate this time. It's, it's sometimes an uncomfortable time, but it ought to be. We pray that today, Lord, you would stretch us again and remind us of how we can grow and draw nearer to you. I pray that your spirit would open our eyes, illuminate our minds as we seek your word. We're grateful for this time in the Gospel of Luke. Help us to conclude it well today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able to, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. And this is following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his appearance to the 12 disciples. It says in Luke 24, verse 44, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer And to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, 
I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you were endued with power from on high. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were constantly in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. You may be seated. We have a lot of scriptures today on your outline. I want to, I will be going through each one, so be sure to uh, be, be referencing that handout as we go through today's message. First, beginning in verse 44, Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Three places in the scriptures that Jesus references that he was revealed. That his coming, his suffering, his death, his resurrection was revealed. Jesus says it was riddled throughout all of the Old Testament for those with eyes to see it. He says it was spoken of in, in, the, in the law of Moses. It was spoken of in the prophets. It was spoken of in the Psalms. And I want to give you just three examples of those. In, in the law of Moses, where was Jesus spoken of? Well, one such instance was Deuteronomy 18, in which Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet. We're speaking of the Messiah. Like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. All the way back in the law of Moses, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was prophesied, was predicted. Not just the law of Moses, but also the prophets. One such example, Isaiah 53. But he, the Messiah, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Not just Moses, but also the prophets. Not just the law, but also the prophets. Isaiah, many others, testified, prophesied of the coming of Jesus, of his suffering, of his death. Take a look also at the Psalms. Psalm 22, selections from that chapter. All those, this is spoken of from the perspective of the Messiah, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Friends, the clarity with which... The Messiah was prophesied in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in all of the Old Testament. The clarity 
is mind-boggling. One final one, Psalm 16.10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. A reference to the resurrection of the dead. All of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, attest to the coming of Messiah Jesus, to his suffering, death, and resurrection. Luke 24, 46, our text, he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. We read these scriptures now in hindsight. You know, we we, we read them 2,000 years removed from the scene of the Jews of Jesus' day. And we read them in hindsight and we look back at the law, the prophets, and the Psalms and we say, it's as clear as day. Their meaning is clearly evident to us. How can anyone not see this? But friends, I'm here to say to you, don't ever take for granted. Don't ever take for granted how plainly you read the word today. Don't ever take for granted how clearly your mind reads the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the prophecies therein. Don't ever take for granted how you look upon them and say, obviously, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. Remember that your ability to read the word and understand its meaning is a gift of God that he has given to you. For many people's eyes have been closed or restrained. They've been closed. They've been, as Paul says it, they've been veiled to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As plain as it is to you and me, we look at the law, we look at the prophets, we look at the Psalms and say, how can you not see this? But for many people, their eyes are veiled. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, should be on your outline there, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of what? The Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Don't ever take for granted how clear you see things in the word. It is a gift of God that you can read it in the way that you do. This same theme, ironically, is, is very much present in the Gospel of Luke. If you, if you have your Bible, it's, uh, I, I forget whether or not I had listed the, there on the outline, but if you have your Bible and look at the story prior to this one, going back to the, the road to Emmaus, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 24, it says that they, that is the people walking with Jesus after he had resurrected, their eyes were, quote, restrained restrained so that they did not know him. These were followers of Jesus, by the way. These were two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem after the resurrection, and even their eyes were restrained, were veiled in part. They couldn't even see him clearly. Later on in that same story, 
Verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with those two, that he took bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to them, and their eyes were what? Opened. And they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? This theme of of veiling, of closing, of restraining, and then of opening, making plain. It is riddled throughout the Gospel of Luke, particularly as we get to the end. In our text this morning, verse 44 again and 45, Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. You see, friends, even the disciples were unclear. They sat with Jesus for three years. They sat under his teaching for three years. They watched all of his miracles for three years. They listened to everything that he said. You would think, after three years of doing that, you might pick up a few things. But even to the point of his death and prior to his resurrection, the disciples, they were despondent. Their eyes were veiled. They didn't get that Jesus had already predicted his death and coming resurrection. God must open our hearts and minds and eyes for us to understand his word and for us to see him clearly. The Father must draw us in. It is a gift of God that you can look upon the word and read it as plainly as you do. Thank God for that every day. Because many people read it and read it with nothing but disdain and with ridicule and with a mocking spirit. They read it, they read the same prophecies that you do and they find every which way to interpret it differently. They find every which way to discredit it, to discredit God's word. Their objective is to prove it false rather than to listen to what it says and believe. It is the humble man or woman who unassumingly asks God for wisdom, whose eyes will be opened to the truth and whose minds will be given wisdom to understand the Lord and his word. Psalm 119, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, David writes, I've sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. It is the humble man or woman who unassumingly asks God for wisdom who will have their eyes opened and their minds clear to read God's word, to understand who the Messiah is. But to the proud, to the proud, all that is given is a veil. So which are you? the humble man or woman who diligently seeks wisdom and instruction from God through his word? Or do you go it alone in your pride? Do you rely instead on your own wisdom and your own know-how, your own life experience 
believing in your own ability to direct your life. You can go that route, but your eyes will be veiled. One way leads to intimacy and growth with God. The other way leads to blindness. And what's most tragic about that blindness is that you don't even know there's a veil. For so much of the gospel of Luke, Jesus has been physically present to show his followers how to live. But now as we near his final ascension into heaven, he re-impresses upon his followers that the intake of God's powerful word is going to be imperative if they desire to draw near to him. 45 again, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Powerful word. Jesus was with them for three years. Now he's saying as he's about to go up to heaven, he says, pay attention to my powerful word. Don't neglect it. Pay also attention, not just to the powerful word of God, but pay attention, Jesus says, to the powerful message that I want you to proclaim. We pick up that message in verse 46 and particularly 47. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus has given us a powerful word to go with us as he ascends into heaven, a powerful word to remind us of all things, to remind us of his coming, of, of, of the prophecies about him and of his instruction for our lives. And he's given us a powerful message within that word, a message that you and I are to proclaim. Jesus writes, and that repentance, verse 47, and remission of sins should be preached in Jesus' name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Regular intake of God's word, necessary for growth and intimacy. Comprehending and disseminating the message, necessary and important for our growth and intimacy in Christ and for the salvation of the nations. The message of repentance and remission of sins. Now it's important that we notate a few points about this message. The way Luke describes it. The way he characterizes it. It's important that we notate a few points as we attempt to understand the message that Jesus has called us to preach. So I've listed there on your outline two, one, two, three points there. The first is this. You can take notes. Repentance and remission of sins are not the same thing, number one. Repentance is turning from sin. Remission is receiving the forgiveness of sin. I'll say that again. Repentance and remission of sin are not the same thing. Repentance is turning from sin. Remission is receiving the forgiveness of sin. And that's an important distinction, one that we should make as we attempt to understand the message that Jesus would have us carry on. Number two, repentance draws us nearer to God. But repentance alone does not guarantee 
the remission or forgiveness of sins. I'll explain that in just a moment. Repentance draws us nearer to God, near to God. But repentance alone does not guarantee the remission or forgiveness of sins. You say, well, how is that the case? Some people define repentance in a variety of different ways. There there have been many in the church that have defined repentance as faith or as belief. But I think a number of scriptures would speak against that. I'm not here to, to, uh, to delve into every single one of them. But nevertheless, repentance and faith are not the same. And repentance and remissions of, remission of sins are not the same thing. So we've, we've defined repentance, uh, uh, in different ways across the history of the Christian church. In some cases, they define it as belief or faith, which I think is incorrect. I think repentance is unique. It's an actual turning from sin. It's looking at sin, not liking it, and turning around and walking away from it. Repentance is turning from sin. We might ask the question, well, if I've turned from sin, doesn't that guarantee that I've been forgiven? Doesn't that guarantee that my sins have been forgiven? That I've received the remission of sins? I want to give five examples as to why the answer is no. Just because you've repented doesn't mean you've received the remission of sins. Five examples on your, out, on your note sheet there. Number one, the prodigal son. Many of you will recall the, the preaching in the prodigal son in Luke 15. What happens? A son of his father his father had a great inheritance. And the son said, Father, give me the inheritance now. I want to I spend it now. And so the father gave him his, his inheritance. And the son went off and lived uh, in, in a prodigal kind of way. He lived wayward. He lived in a way that was uh, luxurious. And he, he was frivolous. And he spent all of his father's inheritance. And he wasted away so much so that he found himself at the end with no money eating with the pigs in Luke 15. And he said to himself, I... What have I done with my life? I need to go back to my father. I need to repent and go back to my father and see if he will take me back. And so this prodigal son, he repents of his wayward living. And he turns around and he walks to the father. But as he walks to the father, he has no guarantee, none whatsoever, that the father will take him back. In fact, the son even says, as he begins the journey home, he says, perhaps my father will take me back as a slave, a servant. So the son is not optimistic that his father will forgive him and take him back. He repents, but as he comes home, he has no guarantee of forgiveness. Beautifully, though, the father does turn to his son and recognize his repentance. And he offers his son forgiveness and a place again at his table. That's one example where repentance doesn't guarantee forgiveness. The son wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Another example would be from Luke chapter 17, when we sin against others, or excuse me, when others sin against us. In Luke 17, Jesus writes this, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You know, why was Jesus saying this? He was saying this at the question of Peter. Peter asked him, he says, he said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother? How many times, Lord, do I have to forgive him? Peter was looking for a way to avoid forgiveness. Peter was looking for a way to say no more. That's the limit. 
If he, if he has to do this over and over and over again, if he has to repent over and over and over again, Lord, where's the limit? I want to put a stop to this. And Jesus says, not just once, but seven times. Seven times indicating completeness or fullness or wholeness. Even if he does it seven times a day, Peter, you are to forgive him. Peter was saying, Lord, how can their repentance not lead to forgiveness? Jesus says, Peter, I want you to find a way to forgive your brother no matter what. That would be a second example in human-to-human relationships where repentance does not always end in forgiveness. We know in our own hearts, we know in our own hearts, when someone's done wrong against us and they repent and they come to us, we know what we've done in the past. There have been times when someone sinned against us and they've come to us repentant. Will you please forgive me? And we go, nope, not yet. We walk away. I'm not ready to forgive you. Repentance does not always lead to forgiveness in human-to-human relationships. Sometimes we say, no, not right now. This, that was one too many times. I can't forgive you yet. Jesus is saying we ought not do that, but we know in our own hearts that that can often happen. Well, those are two examples. You might be saying, well, Neil, you're talking about human-to-human relationships. Okay, let's talk about human-to-the-Lord relationships. Take a look at another exhibit, if you will. The Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. What happened in Jonah chapter 3? The Ninevites, they were living in a way that was sinful against God, right? The Ninevites, they were living in such a way that God was upset with them, was upset with their lifestyle, was upset with the way they conducted themselves, and he sent Jonah to go, and Jonah went with a message of repentance, saying to the Ninevites, you need to repent. God is going to judge you. God is going to destroy your city, destroy your people. And what happened? When they repented, they received a stay of execution, if you will. God did not judge their city. God did not judge their city. They repented and something beautiful happened. But I have a question for you. Do you suppose that just because the Ninevites repented in Jonah chapter 3, do you suppose that every single one of them received the forgiveness of sins and were given the gift of eternal life? Do you suppose that was the case? I'm not so sure that it was. For it wasn't long thereafter, in fact, it wasn't very long thereafter at all, that they changed course again, that their repentance was temporary, and that they turned again to sin. And not even a century later, the Median army came through and wiped out the city of Nineveh, the same people whom Jonah had preached to. Their repentance, it garnered something. It garnered a stay of execution, if you will, for a time. But it did not automatically lead to the remission of sins. Two final examples. The Jews baptized by John in Luke 3. John baptizes the Jews in in Luke chapter 3. He baptizes hundreds, probably thousands of Jews in the Jordan. And what does it say that he did? It says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Hundreds, perhaps thousands were baptized in the Jordan. But you and I would be hard-pressed to suggest that every single one of those Jews who participated in this baptism of repentance therefore necessarily received the remission of sins and the gift of everlasting life. For it was those same people that years later would crucify the Messiah. Some of them surely would have come to faith. But are we to suggest that every single one of them who repented 
and were baptized by John, received the gift of everlasting life, received the forgiveness of sins, I think that'd be a far stretch. My final example is this, in Cornelius of Acts 10. Cornelius of Acts 10. You know what it said of Cornelius? That he was a devout man of God. And it describes him as such before he receives the forgiveness of sins. Before he receives the gift of everlasting life. Before he comes to faith in Christ. It says that Cornelius was a man who was devout. A God-fearing man. He was a repentant man. He was a man who tried to live well. Tried to live right. He had already repented. When Peter happened upon Cornelius in Acts 10, he looked upon him and he saw a man who was repentant, who was devout, who was already doing one half, if you will, of the message of Christ, repentance and remission of sins. He was already repentant. But just because he had repented did not mean he had received the remission of sins. In fact, Paul makes very clear, Peter makes very clear later in Acts 10, recorded by Luke, by the way, who wrote the Gospel of Acts. It was not, it was not Cornelius' repentance that gave him the remission or the forgiveness of sins. No. Peter says very plainly in Acts 10.43, listed on your outline, to him, Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever what? Believes in him will receive remission of sins. This leads us to point three on your outline. Point three on your outline. It is belief or faith in Christ that is the condition for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. I'll say that again. It is belief or faith in Christ that is the condition for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. As told plainly by Peter in Acts 10, as mentioned again in Acts 13, listen to this, write this down, I don't believe it's on your outline, Acts 13, 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And how do you get it? For by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified from the law of Moses. The message that we preach The message that Jesus has called us to preach, it must be a complete message. Repentance, while extremely important, repentance, turning from sin, while very important, is not the condition to receive the remission of sins. Just because you repent does not mean you've received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of everlasting life. Cornelius repented. He was not saved until Peter came and preached to him the gospel. The Ninevites repented. We have to suggest that their whole city was saved. Hundreds, thousands repented at the baptism of John. Are we to suggest that every single one of them came to faith in Christ? It is not always human. Uh, it, it, it is not always the case that repentance will lead to forgiveness. It is often the case that repentance is a catalyst to forgiveness. It is often the case that repentance is that barrier that is brought down where the veil is lifted and someone is able to see the gospel clearly for the very first time. 
Repentance can be a catalyst. Repentance is extremely important to anyone who wishes to follow the Lord. For the Jews, he mentions, by the way, in Luke 24. Notice the phrase in Luke 24, uh, verse 47, beginning at Jerusalem. uh, Jesus says, beginning at Jerusalem, this message needs to go out. Because why? It was at Jerusalem that the people had crucified the Lord. If anyone needed repentance, it was the Jews who had crucified their Messiah. Jesus says, it starts here in Jerusalem. The same people who have put me on a tree, Jesus says. They need to repent. They need to have that barrier removed. They are guilty before God. And later when Peter preaches in Acts 2, it says that as they heard the preaching of Peter and as they realized what they did, in Acts 2.37 it says the Jews were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they realized what they did. And that's when Peter said, repent. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Affiliate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you'll receive the remission of sins. You'll receive forgiveness. Oh, how important that message is for the Jews in Jerusalem who had crucified the Messiah. They needed to repent. And oh, how important that message is for the Gentiles who so often found themselves worshiping false idols, false gods, they needed to repent. And oh, how important that message is for us in our society as we worship gods of money and of power and of lust. We need to repent. But let us not stop there. Let us not just tell the world, repent, repent, repent. If they repent and that's all they do, we will have done nothing for them. No. Repentance and the remission of sins, which according to Acts 10.43 comes to those who believe in the Son for everlasting life. When I see on the street corner up at you know, 3rd Street Promenade in, Sa- in Santa Monica, or when I see in the street corner down in San Diego or in Los Angeles a, a preacher and he's holding up that sign, repent, repent, repent. Friends, that is half the message. He's giving half the message. If all you do is repent, you are not receiving the forgiveness of sins. If all you do is repent, you are not receiving the gift of eternal life. Look upon Jesus Christ. Look upon his death, his resurrection, his sacrifice for you. And believe in him. Put your faith in him. Trust him. And you will be justified. Your sins will be remitted. You will be forgiven. You will be given the gift of everlasting life. Jesus wants us to preach a gospel of repentance. Repentance toward God. And of faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul writes. And as Jesus says in Luke 24, 47, to him, to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the the remission of sins. And it is this message, friends, that Luke 
that Jesus says plainly in verse 48, and you are witnesses of these things. You are to testify of these things. You are messengers of these things. Behold, Jesus says, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. This is the message, Luke 24, 47, that the disciples were to be witnesses of. This is the testimony that was to be on their lips and on our lips. Good news. The gospel. And it is a gospel that is powerful because we speak it to others, not of our own accord, not out of our own strength, but with the power of the promised Holy Spirit that is in us, who opens human hearts and illuminates human minds. Verse 49, behold, Jesus says, I send the promise of my father, the Holy Spirit, upon you. Terry, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You, as I go to heaven, you are going to receive a powerful word. Your eyes are going to be opened. Your mind's illuminated. You will see the word of God and know how to live and know how to go forth. And you will receive a powerful message in that word, a message that you must understand clearly and plainly not to preach half of it, but to preach all of it. And you are to receive a powerful spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will take what you've learned in the word and will take the message that you proclaim and will do the work of changing hearts around you as you preach it, as you live it. Luke ends his gospel with Jesus ascending in verse 50 to 53. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, just nearby Jerusalem. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he parted from them and and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. A final benediction of sorts. Jesus took them out to Bethany raised his hands and blessed them. And they, he rose into the skies and departed from their sight. You want to read a little bit more of a description about this? Luke's kind of, he's kind of brief right here. He writes a, a description of it again in, in Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 is essentially Luke part 2, written by the same author. So the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke in Acts 1 continues, carries on the story and goes from speaking about Jesus Christ and his life and goes now, Luke goes on to speak about the life of the disciples, of Peter, of Paul, and of all their missionary journeys. Jesus led them to Bethany, gave them a parting benediction, and he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They worshiped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple praising And blessing God. Amen. That concludes uh, our time in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, I've been, I was thinking, uh, uh, Pastor Tom and I were uh, ruminating a little bit over what we have learned in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, 18 months of study. Uh, We didn't hit every vignette, every story, but we hit a lot of them. And uh, I was actually looking even, even very simply over the titles of the messages uh, that were preached and of the topics and the themes that were um, studied and considered. 
And I, I have a parting word uh, from the Gospel of Luke that I'd like to read to you that I've listed on the back of your outline. So I want you to hear this. And a, a, as you hear it, this is, for me, a summary of this Gospel. It is, for me, a, a final statement about what we've learned as a community as we've gone through this wonderful Gospel. So I want to read it to you, and I, wanna, I want it to be really a, a prayer of blessing over you and a benediction over you. And so as you hear these words, just receive them. Receive them in your heart and, uh, and thank God for what we've learned together. God is watching. Every moment is a kingdom moment. And you will have your day in court. So invest in the kingdom of God. Don't merely seek temporary greatness on earth. Seek timeless greatness and treasure in the kingdom. Exhibit the humility of Christ. Go where Jesus goes to the unlovely, to those on the borders of society. Expand the guest list. Persecution is coming. Satan has asked for us to sift us like wheat. Let us surprise our enemies with love when they do us wrong. Remember that God has given us a powerful word, a powerful message powerful spirit lean on his word be faithful to the message of the gospel do it all in the power and strength that the spirit provides amen heavenly father lord we just submit uh, our time in luke to you and uh, we uh, trust lord that your spirit your powerful spirit would use your powerful word to continue to impress upon our hearts how to live, how to conduct ourselves, how to speak, how to act, how to clearly proclaim the message of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom, by our faith, is the remission of sins. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of everlasting life that you've given to us. May we take that gift, may we take that life, and may we experience it abundantly as we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.